0: This evening, Genesis chapter 1, the third part in our series looking at uh, the the first three chapters of the Bible, and how that can help us understand uh, what's going on in the world and how we got here and what, what to do about it. Genesis chapter 1, we'll spend two weeks on verse 1, now we'll look at the rest of the chapter. This is... And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit you shall have them for food, and every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day, thus far the reading of God's holy word. I'm not sure if you're aware, but this past week, um, actually on Tuesday, I think that's uh, right, Tuesday, November 15th, experts around the world announced an unprecedented milestone had been reached that the global population has now exceeded 8 billion people. In fact, um, in a remarkable rate of growth, we got from 7 billion to 8 billion in under 12 years. And approaching this figure garnered commentary from all sorts of people. For years, environmentalists and policymakers have been warning of uh, the ecological dangers of overpopulation, which would include things like uh, irreversible climate change and, and mass starvation. The United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization reported in 2014 that global soils were degrading so quickly that there may only be 60 harvests left, which um, I suppose would put us to 52 now. As recently as last year, an article appeared in Vogue magazine titled, quote, Is Having a Baby in 2021 Pure Environmental Vandalism? And the answer from the author, who herself recently had a baby, amounted to a guilt-stricken, probably, yes, it is pure environmental vandalism to keep having children. So how are Christians to think of these things? Does the Bible instruct us in how we should think about this world and our place in it? Uh, indeed it does, and, and that's right at the very beginning. Uh, there's a lot of detail given in this chapter. We could spend a whole ten weeks just unpacking Genesis 1, but that's not... Um, what we're doing in this particular series. Uh, We're going to take a bigger picture approach. We're zooming out. We're seeing what themes emerge from the narrative in terms of how God created the world, what what themes emerge, and then how that helps us uh, come to uh, a proper understanding of how we are to use and to enjoy uh, this creation. And I want us to see three things in this. Uh, First, the goodness of creation. And then, secondly, the order of creation, and finally, the pinnacle of creation. The first thing that jumps out at us is it's really impossible to miss. It's the goodness of creation. This refrain that comes up seven times in the first six days of the world that God saw what He was making was good, and in one instance, very good. After um, He completes His work on the sixth day, in verse thirty-one. What makes creation good? Uh, What makes it good? The answer to that question should be obvious. It is good because God made it. It's good because God made it. Uh, English theologian Stephen Charnock, he wrote back in the 1700s, I think 1700s, he has a book on the attributes of God, and this is what he says. He says, this is the true and genuine character of God. He is good. He is goodness, good in himself, good in his essence, good to the highest degree, possessing whatever is comely, excellent, desirable, the highest good because he is the first good. All of the names of God are comprehended in this one good. Why is creation good? Because a good God made it. In the 1600s, Francis Turton rightly claimed that it was God's communication of himself, that he imparted something of himself. Into creation that makes it good. Uh, hundreds of years later, there was another Francis, not Terton this time of the Schaeffer variety. Uh, he wisely wrote that every step and every sphere of creation and the whole thing put together, man himself and his total environment, the heavens and the earth, conforms to myself. That's what God means when he says it's good. It conforms to myself. In the opening chapter of Genesis is helpful commentary for us on natural revelation that is to say when you read genesis 1 you're helped in understanding how you should read the outside world the created order when you when you look at it uh, we don't always see that do we the goodness of the of the world in nature uh, is some of that resplendence lost since the fall well certainly so romans 8 talks about all of creation groaning but also it plays that our eyes, due to sin, have been so clouded that we don't see what's right in front of us, or our hearts have become so dull that even when we see it, we're not moved by it, and we don't declare, wow, this is good. But truly, a good creation is, it means it's, it's blameless. It's without blame, without defect in its making. It is beautiful to behold, and it is beneficial. It is of use. We can use that. Let's consider those three things. First, It's blameless. It's made without flaw or defect. Uh, Can we say that about anything that we have set our hands to? That it's without any flaw whatsoever? It is rare that we step back and survey our work and think, I have done that exactly right. I mean, quite often it's the opposite. If we're showing somebody, you know, a project we've done at home and, and they might be astounded by it. Wow, this is amazing. But if you're the one who did it, you know all the tiny flaws that nobody else can see. Um, there's a, an entire show, I haven't seen it, but just the trailer makes, is hysterical. Has anybody seen this? It's called Nailed It, I think. It's on Netflix about baking disasters, and it's just, they take people who have no idea what they're doing, they put, throw them in a kitchen, and they tell them to make cakes, and they say, nailed it, and you just see this awful thing, is falling to pieces, right? That's, that's us. Yeah, nailed it. And yet God is is the only one who can step back, survey what he's done, and he can truly say, this is what I intended. This came out perfectly. This is good. The world is blameless in that sense, in its created state. The fact that the world is good also means that it's beautiful. Terry Johnson says that in Genesis 2, God puts man in a garden. Notice, he doesn't put him in a desert. He doesn't put man in a wasteland uh, with a bag of fertilizer, and demand him that he make something of it. But he, pu- but he put him in a beautiful garden whose trees were, according to Genesis 2, pleasant to the sight and good for food. You know this, right? I mean, can you look up in the night sky that's embroidered with constellations and not say, wow, that's amazing? Uh, can you observe a, a, a crimson sunset with with purple clouds and not be moved to go Wow. Could you stand on the shore of Lake Michigan or at the rim of the Grand Canyon or or at the base of El Capitan in Yosemite National Park and, and look at what's before you and not declare that it's beautiful? If you can do that, something's wrong with you. Literally, something is wrong with you. And even when we keep silent, the rocks cry out that God, the maker, is good and what he has made is good. This world is beautiful. And it's also beneficial, it's useful, it has a purpose. Mankind was made to have dominion over the earth, to rule it, to subdue it for our, for our use. God's command to Adam and Eve is that humans do have the right to use, although not use up entirely, but to use in wisdom all of the world's resources. The world was made for our benefit in that sense. Uh, Paul writes in First Timothy 4, Verse 4, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. We can think of the the well-known fact of the uh, Native American culture where uh, they would, when they slaughter an animal, use every single part of that animal. The meat would be for food and the uh, skin would be for clothing and the bones even would be for tools and, and instruments. So, since the world is good, meaning that it's a reflection of the being of God, and therefore it's without blemish, it's, it's brimming with beauty, it's abundantly beneficial for our use. Since the world is good, what should our response be? How should we care for this world? Well, let's just be honest. Conservative Christian and tree-hugging environmentalists, they seem to be as, as opposite of images as you could come up with, Right? Uh, Yet caring for the environment was a responsibility given specifically to Adam and Eve. That's verses 28 through 30 of our text. Tells them to care for this world. And it comes up again in Genesis 2 when God commands that Adam uh, work the ground and that he keep the garden. So why does it seem, though, like secularists, non-Christian secularists, are far more interested in the care and conservation of our planet than your average evangelical Christian? Why is that? Uh, part of the reason we saw is from Romans 1, we looked at that last week, where fallen man is prone to worship, according to verse 25, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed uh, forever. And that means that hugging a tree is easier, easier than honoring the one who made that tree. It, it's, just, it, it's just easier because that tree doesn't demand anything of you, right? A tree doesn't call you to be holy. A tree lets you just be you. Uh, but it goes far beyond simply wanting to save the trees, Uh, Mother Earth isn't so much a throwaway phrase as it is a deeply held belief by some uh, New Age proponents. The Earth is divine. It demands our careful preservation, i.e. worship. That's what we find, and uh, that would be panentheism, that God is in the world. It's not that he's, he's everywhere, but that he's in everything, in created order. You know, if we return to that Native American, although it's commendable how they use their resources, why did they do that? It had to do with this kind of circle of life view that they that they took, um, it was dictated by that same panentheistic belief. I'm not going to pronounce this correctly. Mitakaye oisin, that's a Native American prayer, it means all is related or all are related. That was a common prayer offered up at the slaughter of a bison, right? Acknowledging that as they used this animal, they were uh, they were taking what had been given to them uh, from the world, and they were giving back, or from the earth, and they were giving back to the earth. It was this kind of circle of life. It was this religious ritual. So some Christians then, I think, have a knee-jerk reaction. They push it back against an intentional um, care for the environment because of that pagan influence. But perhaps we've gone too far in the other uh, direction. While while we may not uh, be prone to worship the creation o- over the creator not drawn or attracted to, worship the creation over the creator in that sort of sense, as we are heirs of the fall, we are still liable not to worship the creator correctly. I mean, that's just that's just part of what it means to be a fallen human being, a, a, a sinner. So keeping good care of this earth is one of the ways that we glorify the God who made us. Uh, Christians, therefore, not secularists, should be leading the charge to care for the earth. Not because our survival depends upon it. We don't need to run around panicking like uh, people do on the news about um, uh, climate change and things like that. That's not why we lead the charge in conservatism or conserving the world. It's because we love the Lord who made it. And part of being made in his image, part of submitting to him and submitting to his call upon us, is to take good care of the good things That He's entrusted to us. He's commanded us to do this, and as John tells us, his commandments are not burdensome. Phil Reichen says this, to be wasteful is to be disrespectful to our creator. Wherever we go, we are to remember that this is our father's world, and he has called us to care for it. And so we see the goodness of creation, we are meant to respond in kind by caring for it. Another thing that stands out in this chapter beyond the goodness of creation is is an order to this created world, an order to creation. In other words, there's a clear purpose and a clear design for what God makes and how God makes it, which is to say the creation of the world is not just an arbitrary display of divine power. It's not just God taking a paintbrush, as it were, and, and... flinging it against the canvas and, and seeing what comes up. This is not a Jackson Pollock painting. This is uh, intentionally ordered. Uh, Paul says, 1 Corinthians fourteen thirty three. God is not a God of chaos, but of order. Not a God of confusion, but of peace. And so, since he's not ad-libbing, since he's not improvising, we shouldn't be surprised that an order emerges, a pattern emerges as you look at how these Days of creation are structured. Uh, in the first three days, God forms what what could be called realms. There's the, the realm of light and then sea and sky in day two and land on day three. And then the second three days um, correspond that day four, um, God fills what he has formed in day one. In day five, he fills what he had formed in day two. In day six, he fills fills what he had formed in day three. So sun and moon rule the light. Fish and birds fill the sea and sky. The land, animals, and mankind cover the face of the earth. And that's not just like neat. Oh, that's cool. I never saw that before. It's not neat in that sense. This is proof that God knows what he's doing, that he's a God of order, of purpose, of pattern. And if God made the world in an orderly fashion, we should not be surprised that he also fashioned order into the world. What do I mean by that? Well, take, for example, the golden ratio. Maybe some of you have heard that before. The golden ratio. The golden ratio is a, a mathematical uh, formula that artists and scientists have hailed as, as being perfect symmetry and, and perfect proportion for centuries. And you find it used by artists like uh, da Vinci and uh, Rembrandt and Van Gogh, it's even found in, in architecture in ancient Greece, the way things would be made, it all conformed to this, uh, this ratio. But before that, well, it's found in the bud of a flower or the, the spiral of the shell of a snail. And that's why it's been rightly deemed by Renaissance mathematician Luca Pacioli the divine proportion, the divine proportion, This is God's order. There's not just beauty in God's world. There's function. The way God made the world as ordered by God, it it works. You know, this afternoon we went for a walk and um, put Obi on the leash. And, you know, he had a great time on this walk. And yet um, I've got all these uh, coats and, and gloves and scarves and I have my boots on. And Obi doesn't have anything, but yet God made dogs with, with you know, padded paws that give them control and stability, even comfort, on a variety of terrain. Um, he was able to, to handle that just fine. Yet when we got back to the house, he was reminded that God made me with opposable thumbs, and I'm the one who could open the door to let him into the house. So... My design allows me to live in my world and my dog's design allows him to live in his. And that's why five times in Genesis 1, we're told that God created different species according to their kinds. That is to say, nature makes sense because it's created by a God of sense and order. So if God's wisdom can be found in creation, which it can be. Uh, the psalmist says, uh, "O oh Lord, how manifold of your works In wisdom you've made them all. Psalm 104, 24. If God's wisdom is found in creation, then what does that mean for us? Well, it means that we need to let nature be our teacher. Or if I could borrow a phrase, we need to trust the science. I say that without embarrassment and without excuse to trust the science too often we pit the study of our bibles against the sciences but they are friends not enemies both are explorations of the revelation of god you know bible study is the exploration of special revelation and science is the exploration of natural revelation As science reveals to us the patterns in nature and the limits also of nature, it's teaching us about God's embedded wisdom in the created order. I can't jump off a building and fly even if I want to because flying goes against my human nature. But a bird can do it because that is normal to to avian nature. Now, not only would it be... Foolish of me to try to to jump off a building and fly. It would even be immoral of me to do so. It would be immoral of me, ungodly of me, because it's an act that tries to defy God by defying His created order. Old Testament scholar Gordon Wenham says this about the phrase, according to their kinds. He says, there's a givenness. About time and space, which God has ordered by his own decree. The different species of plant and animal life, again, bear testimony to God's creative plan. And the implication, here, this is important. The implication, though not stated, is clear. What God has distinguished and created distinct, man ought not to confuse. The Old Testament, in describing how our world came to be, is at the same time suggesting a moral stance to be adopted towards natural order. Things are the way they are because God made it so, and men and women should accept his decree. You understand why that's so important today, I hope. I don't think there's a lot of people who are trying to jump off buildings and claiming they identify as birds. But there are... Plenty of men who are saying they identify as women, and women who are saying they identify as men. Perhaps you know some, and perhaps there are some in your family. But we need to take a strong stance here, not only on what the Bible says, but on what nature tells us. To trust the science that no, no amount of no amount of makeup or costume change or life altering surgery can change the fact that half the world has xy chromosomes and the other has xx chromosomes and we are better when we bind ourselves to the boundaries that god has set in place for us in this world now these issues might seem novel to us that we're dealing with in the 21st century but they aren't in his day paul spoke of men and women giving themselves over to practices that were quote contrary to nature that's romans 126 that's a phrase paul uses contrary to nature in other words We don't need the Bible to tell us what is immoral, what's unnatural. Nature tells us these things. And our job, just as we must submit to what the Bible says, is to submit to what creation says as well. The great Dutch theologian, Herman Bavinck, quotes Augustine on this point. He says, Augustine says, The will of God is the supreme law. The nature of any particular created thing is precisely what the supreme creator of the thing willed it to be. Bobbink goes on to the question of why things exist and are as they are. There is no other and deeper answer than that God willed it. And if somebody should say, why did God will it? Well, here's what Augustine answers. He is asking for something greater than the will of God, but nothing greater can be found. Nothing greater can be found. God's will was that our world would make sense, that it would have an order. And when we submit to that, our lives make sense too. We are better for it. So we've seen the goodness of creation. We've seen the order of creation. Finally, another theme that's hard to miss when reading Genesis 1 is that humanity is the pinnacle of creation. For no other reason, the truism that you save the best for last would prove this, but we have other reasons to to recognize that. Um, It's only in creating man that the author of Genesis lets us in on the divine counsels of God. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over creeping things that creep on the earth. Only the creation of man moves the author to sing. In verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Only man is called to subdue the earth, to have dominion over the earth. For these reasons and and others, we see that man is the crowning point of achievement of God's creation, the image of God as that final work, that that pinnacle work in creation. We're going to talk about what the image of God means and why it's so important in the next few weeks. But tonight, let's just conclude with three uh, takeaways uh, for uh, what it means that we, as humans, are the pinnacle of creation. What should that do for us. Um, First, it should direct our priorities. That's the first thing. It should direct our priorities. Since we're made in God's image as the pinnacle of his world, we should prioritize our needs, or that is to say human needs, over non-human needs. That might seem like a no-brainer, but some people would fight against that. Uh, Many non-Christians would agree, and they would say that's proof of, you know, uh, Darwin's um, uh, survival of the fittest. But there are other Uh, Animal rights proponents who will deny the idea of human exceptionalism altogether. Jeff Sabois, as a a professor at NYU, he has an essay entitled uh, Against Human Exceptionalism, and he argues that human beings, their high capacity for relationship and for um, reasoning does not justify humans' being prioritized over the rest of the animal kingdom. Let me read you just a few sentences. He says, Suppose that I do, in fact, have a duty to take care of my family before I take care of yours, all things being equal. Does it follow that I then could treat your family however I like? Of course not. It would be wrong for me to take food from your family to provide food for mine, particularly if my family already had much more food than yours does. It would also be wrong for me to kill your family so that I could provide my family with human flesh to eat instead of, say, rice and beans. These points apply, though, across species, too, he says. Now, of course, any proper understanding of any grasp of Genesis 1 will tell you that these points do not apply across species. Although we would certainly agree with everything he says in terms of human-to-human relationships, once you involve animals, no. Because why? God gave us this world and everything in it for our use, for our benefit, for us to use as resources. Bearing in mind what we noted earlier about how we should care for the creation, we don't need to feel guilty when we use it properly, and that does include eating meat. I know it's not there in Genesis one; that's another conversation for another day. But it does include eating meat, so it should direct our priorities to know that we are God's crowning point of achievement, uh, our, our crowning achievement in in the work of creation. Secondly, it should direct our prayers, should it not? Do you not know anybody who who is is uh, lost in the world, uh, who maybe a family member, a friend, a neighbor who who does not know that they are so loved by God that they are that they that they are indeed His 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 final um, work in the created order. They they might be transgressing the good boundaries that God has placed in, in the world, and therefore they're missing out on their purpose in life. Do you not know anybody who's confused about these things? Who who is who has been uh, totally taken in by the ideologies of this day that say you know you do you do whatever you want to your body you can be whoever you want to be and they're missing out on not only what God commands we should do but what actually will tend what will lead to our happiness and our fulfillment do you not know anyone like that what should you do for them you should pray for them you should pray for them we should not be content that that any are confused on these issues and, and and are lost because of it. We can so easily take an us versus them mentality with those who have differing worldviews than us. But Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies. Why does he tell us to pray for our enemies? Not just because it's an exercise in love and humility, but because they are God's creatures, our enemies are. They are made in God's image, our enemies are. And it is heartbreaking. It should be heartbreaking to see that image defiled or deliberately marred. And so we pray. We pray for our lost friends, families, and neighbors because they are destined. They were meant to be destined for things so much better than than what they're aiming for right now. Finally, it directs our priorities, our prayers. It should direct our praise. Friends, do you recognize it's because God saved as it were, the best for last, it's because we're the crowning point of, achievement, or of creation that God redeems us. That's why he saves us. It's because we are made in his image. It's because he communicated himself to us in that way. It's because he shared himself with us in that way that he's not content to let us self-destruct. He's, it's as though God sees sin enter the world and he sees what that does to humanity And he can't just turn his back on it. Why not? Because he says, that's my image there. It's almost like that's his reputation. These are my people. These are my children. God gave himself to us when he made us. And then he gave himself to us again to remake us, to save us. And he does that for no other creature. No other created thing. It's only you and me who can sing Amazing Love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And so, do you sing it? Do you praise him? Do you rejoice that, that Christ would take on your flesh and blood to redeem you from the curse of sin? Remember that we are not the only creatures that fell. In fact, we're not even the first creatures that fell angels fell from heaven angels who who dwelt in god's presence angels who when unfallen perfectly do the bidding of god angels who when not fallen spend their entire waking hours in glorious concert singing holy 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 is the lord god almighty these these creatures that defy Uh, our understanding in any sort of definition, but we know they are totally unlike us in that they're always with the Lord. They're always doing what the Lord wants. They're always praising the Lord. These creatures, even, these angelic hosts that have fallen, God has not stooped to save. And so, perhaps your soul would be Um, well served to go home if you go home tonight and you reflect on these words from hebrews for surely it is not angels that he helps and indeed if you are willing to receive his help uh, tonight you could go home and say more than that you could say surely it is not angels that he helps but he helps me and if he helps you then you ought to praise him let's pray Father, we thank you that we are made in your image, such a glorious gift, and even though sin has marred that image, uh, you have been so kind and merciful to redeem the image, to rescue us from our folly, to rec- rescue us from our error, from our rebellion. Lord, we are so prized by you, and yet often we don't realize that, and we think we can find satisfaction following the idols of this age. But in reality, all the fulfillment, the satisfaction, the happiness, the security that we need in life is found in acknowledging and embracing and, and rejoicing the fact that you are our creator and you are our redeemer as well and you delight in us. Cause that truth to uh, take root in our hearts, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.